So if you recall in disputation number one, God <clears throat> was reaffirming his love to Israel over their objections and ultimately teaching them that he is a universal sovereign. In disputation number two, God was immediately and decisively contesting with the Levitical priests regarding their abandonment of their sacred responsibilities as the priesthood in Israel. And if you recall, the severity of his judgment was matched by the solemnity of their responsibility. They were the keepers of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is what God gave to those people to keep them together in order that they might fulfill their responsibility as the children of God in that time and place. And we'll think about that a little bit more as we move along this morning. I've given you a handout, <clears throat> and the reason for that is my anticipation that we're not going to be able to get everything said in the detail that we had hoped. And so this is a summary. If you don't have one of these documents, raise your hand and Janine will give you one. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, this morning, my plan is to look at Disputation 3, 4, and 5. We'll look at Disputation 6 tomorrow morning and perhaps have some other wrap-up at that time. So I'm going to be referring to the handout some and to my slides some. So the first thing we'd like to do as we come into Disputation number 3 is remind ourselves that the first three disputations primarily concern themselves with a call to faithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant. And then 4, 5, and 6 speak to us primarily about preparation for the coming of the day of the Lord. So I'd like to, let's just start over here. Uh, Philip, right? That's you? Gotcha. Okay. Will you start reading either off the screen or your Bible? Let's read Disputation number 3. Have we all not one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that does this, the master of the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offered an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have he done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Okay, next, brother. Yet we say, wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion, the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore, the one, that he might seek God and be seized. Therefore, take 
Israel treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hated the wife. For one who covereth violence is his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, that you feel not treacherously. Thank you. Okay, you're familiar with this format, this um, introduction to the disputation. I want you to notice here that now Malachi has changed his introduction. Um, Malachi is not talking to the priests at this point. He is now talking to the people. And the other thing you should notice is, is this point here, that this disputation begins with the voice of the prophet, not with the voice of God. Remember in the second disputation, we had, the, we had those messenger formula, 11 messenger formula, where, where almost everything he said was, was ended by, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Malachi has switched his approach a little bit now, and we're hearing his voice, though we know by now that his voice is the voice of the Lord. I've mentioned in the past, um, and I, I note it here, that there is a high level of vocabulary re, um, redundancy in, in some of Malachi's writings, and this would be a perfect example of that. The word treacherously is, is circled here and highlighted in this passage. We see the word treacherously five times in this um, disputation. That should call our attention to it, just like any time as you read through a, a passage like this and you notice that the author is using word repetition or particular catchphrases that he repeats, that's not because he had a limited vocabulary. Remember, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit wanting the readers to, to pay attention to what's being repeated. And in this case, <clears throat> the reason I circled treacherously the first time is because this word is extremely strong in the Hebrew. It has the very clear connotation of betrayal. Now, in this very first uh, sentence, it doesn't really say what that level of betrayal is. It's going, it's going to, as the disputation um, transitions, it's, we're going to see very clearly how God feels like the children of Israel have betrayed him. But I want you to know just right off the bat that this is a very strong statement, even, even though he doesn't use the messenger formula like he did in disputation number two, and even though he's not addressing the priesthood, he's addressing the folks. This is an ex a, a disputation of extremely strong language. We're going to look now at some specific sins that Malachi is going to focus on. In verses 10 and 11, he's going to focus on interfaith marriages. 12 and 13, he's going to look at heathen slash pagan styles of worship. And in 14 through 16, as, as he goes more in, into the implication section, he's going to talk about aversion-based divorce. And, and by that is meant divorce simply because a guy got tired of his wife and no longer liked her. That's prohibited under the Mosaic Covenant. And once again, he is very concerned with the violations of the Mosaic Covenant. So I'm going to skip a couple of, um, of 
slides, and I'm going to go right here to this exposition, which is what you see on your handout, and then what's to the right in italics is, um, is added. I want you to notice, first of all, how Malachi calls Israel to their common origin. He calls them to their common origin of having one father. I want to focus on that a moment. This is extremely important, not, not just because it's the topic of this conference, but in, in the course of this disputation, in, in the, the course of all of his address to the nation of Israel, Malachi is saying here that God is their father, and that invests God, it should invest God in the minds of these people with all of that regal authority included under the, the fatherhood of, of God, of Jehovah, of Yahweh. They should recognize that. That not only is he saying we all have common ancestry in God because God called us as the nation of Israel, but this common ancestry, this, this common father is, is, is Yahweh. He, he is the, the all-powerful, universal sovereign. And they need to recognize that because he is about to level some very significant charges on them. I would like somebody to please read um, verse 10. Whoever's next, reread verse 10 for us, please. Yes, Malachi 2. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profane the covenant of the fathers? Okay, I want, I want to bring this point out. Not only do, does Malachi say that, that God has begotten them, but what I want to talk about right now is his, his statement, that his question, why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by violating the covenant of our fathers? Malachi is saying that because the folks are violating the Mosaic covenant, and by extension, of course, the priesthood, by the violation of the Mosaic covenant, these people are dealing treacherously with one another, they are betraying one another. Now, we may not get to the practical application of this in our lives, but I do want you to think about that. Maybe make yourself a note and ask yourself, are you cognizant of the fact that as a believer, you may be dealing treacherously with your brothers and sisters by violating the Word of God? In this case, the violation is, is really pretty clear. The children of Israel... Hold on, we'll get, we'll, I'm going to get ahead of myself. We'll get to that. Um, I just want to point that out very clearly, that the, the betrayal is based upon the fact that they were violating the Mosaic Covenant. In verse 11, Malachi says that they profane God's holiness by religious intermarriage. Now, let's, let me make a point here. That does not say that because of, of uh, inter-ethnic uh, marriages, it is saying interreligious, interfaith marriages. That was expressly prohibited in the Mosaic Covenant to marry the daughters of other gods. And this is what's happening here. You know, in the New Testament, we have um, a principle that we would normally call what? An unequal yoke. An unequal yoke. Um, I would not perform a marriage if someone came to me and, and they were. They were a believer, and the other person was not a believer. Just straight up not a believer. This person was a believer. 
I would not do that marriage. We, I might try to work with them and, and see where we can go from there, but just on the face of it, I wouldn't perform that marriage. I think that's biblically inconsistent. It's an unequal yoke. This problem of interfaith marriages was a sticky problem in Israel. Not only did it precede Malachi, and it was current during Malachi's time, but I would like for someone to um, please read these three verses from Ezra. I'm sorry if you can't see it. You can pick it up out of your own Bible. But I'd like someone to read Ezra 9, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, and the Egyptians. And Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in their in this trespass. When I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle, plucked off the hair of my head, my beard, and sat down this stone. Astonished work. It's the stonied there. That's how the old English translated it. Okay, do you see, I want you to see a couple of things here. I, I want you to see, number one, that this problem was not just reserved for um, a certain class of people in Israel. Ezra, Ezra was flipping out over this circumstance. I mean, it's, it, he says that he rent his garment and his mantle, plucked off the hair of his head, see Grant would like that, and of my beard, and sat down astonished. Ezra, Ezra was just having this existential meltdown as he came, comes back into Jerusalem, no doubt knew of the preaching of Malachi, and he finds out that these people are still violating this basic tenet of the Mosaic Covenant, and that is this unequal yoke. They were marrying women of other faiths. They were bringing other gods into this family structure. <clears throat> and it if you look up in verse 1, it, it included the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites. Every strata of society was guilty of this. And if you go into the book of Nehemiah, we don't have the time to quote from there now, but Nehemiah is every bit as vivid in his repulsion from this violation. And notice what's being said here. They have profaned the holiness of God. They have profaned God's holiness. To profane means to do damage to. It means to compromise. It means to wound. And I want you to think about that. If you are familiar at all with the sixth chapter of Isaiah and the vision of Isaiah in that chapter, and Isaiah's vision of God is, is the cherubims all around the throne and, and holy, 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 thrice holy, Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. And Malachi is telling these people, you are profaning the thrice holy character of God by this intermarriage. That tells me a couple of things. It tells me that people can be very insensitive and perhaps ignorant of who their God really is. And it also tells me that because God is so absolutely perfect, even the most minor or seemingly minor transgression 
is a violation, is, is a profanity against him. Let's look at verse 12. Those guilty of religious intermarriage will be cut off. That is, that is one of the, the multiple curse types in the Old Testament, and it typically re, re, um, refers to, to Yahweh cutting someone off out of the tents of Jacob, cutting somebody off out of the camp. It's typically, this is not typically given in the context of of a religious trial, this is more, more like um, um, praying that God will curse that person and cut him off out of the tents of Jacob. Very strong uh, condemnation of this practice. Verse, four, verse 13, notice verse 13, how the, how the people try to cover their, their sorrow with, um, with um, tears and crying and, 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 and this emotional show. At first, I thought, well, that's, what's so wrong with that? But when you start going deeper into it and looking into the history, this is pagan worship. This is not. If you look at the remedies in the, in the Mosaic Covenant, weeping and crying and carrying on and falling all over around the altar, which, by the way, the people weren't doing. They had to, they had to get the priests to do that for them because they couldn't go into the altar. So the priests were complicit in this pagan-style worship, why would a priest be complicit in pagan-style worship practices? Pressure of the people would be one, but maybe the pressure of their wives, if they had taken wives of false gods. See, this, this, it doesn't take long, young people, for sin to start out maybe kind of small, and even for practical reasons. Maybe these guys were coming back from Babylon. There were no Jewish women, so what's the problem with going across the border and grabbing somebody who happens to bring her gods along with her in her backpack? And, it, it, and all of a sudden, then this becomes into full-blown religious confusion in Israel, and God's holiness is profaned. I would just like to offer this comment and, and exhortation as an older man don't trifle with sin. Don't, don't think, well, other people are doing this, so I kind of understand what my folks are telling me and the Bible says, but so many other people are doing this, it's got to be acceptable. No, it doesn't have to be acceptable. Acceptability is cataloged in the New Testament for us, not by the voice of the majority. So God, in verse 13, rejects the false pretense of, of, of this pagan worship, the Lord says in verse 14 that he is witness against them um, now regarding another sin, and that is the putting away of their wives. Now, you may, as your Bible readers, and so you may say, well, wait a minute, Ezra, Ezra's um, um, remedy for all of this interfaith marriage was just to kick these girls out and send them back to wherever they came from. And that's right, that's what Ezra did. But that's not what we're talking about here. Here God is talking about what is called aversion-based divorce, the putting away of their wives just because they don't like her anymore, just because she doesn't please them anymore. God hates that. God absolutely hates that. Verse 15, you know, a lot of us who are dads, um, we look at verse 15 and we say, boy, that's, that's a great, that verse is so straightforward and simple that God wants us to, to, to love the wife of our youth he wants us to raise up a godly seed to him. I have said that. I have prayed that. I believe that. There's an application there. But this actually is one of the most difficult verses to translate in all of the book of Malachi, if not in all of the Old Testament. 
I, I, I just got dizzy reading all of the different interpretations of this verse by equally conservative scholars. And I, and I don't even want to start to, to go into that. I want to just say what, what I think the more reasonable of them say is, number one, God expects us to love and cherish and remain with the wife of our youth. God expects that the seed that comes from that marriage will be a godly seed. And so as, as you may anticipate that someday in your future you will be parents, that is a good passage of scripture to have as a goal. So let's just let the complexity of the Hebrew language rest there. God hates in verse 16, the putting away of their wives. He hates it vehemently. I'd like, to, I'd like to think a moment as I, this, I'm going to go off your handout, and I want to look at um, just some thoughts here. The integrity of Israel as a witness to God. And um, we're going to read a passage. I'd like someone to read this passage for us, please. Uh, read the whole, the whole screen to us. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Eat therefore and do this, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of nations, which shall hear all these statutes, and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them? As the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Okay, I'm sorry I didn't give you a reference here, but that's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. The reason I'm, I'm putting this before you is to show you <clears throat> just how blessed the children of Israel were, just, just how equipped they were of God. And they had, they had a purpose. They had a purpose as, um, as witnesses of God in, in that world. And so <clears throat> if, we think, uh, if we think about it just a little bit, that, that God chose those people out of, from, um, Abraham was a heathen. Abraham was chosen, and, and through Abraham there were great blessings promised, and, and those blessings and those promises will go all the way into eternity. Israel was the vehicle through which God's holy will and sovereign decrees were to be kept, and they were favored nation status like no other nation. I, and, I, and I'll admit, you may, you may disagree with me, I believe that Israel is a chosen people. There is a bright future for Israel coming. But Israel at this stage of their existence had completely profaned God's plans for them. And I, I want you to see that because, because God will then tell them in the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy, verses 6 and 8, that they were a chosen nation. They were chosen for a specific purpose. God had an eternal decree in mind for them. God also says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, that they were going to be a kingdom of priests. They were going to be a kingdom of priests that were going to witness for him 
to all of the nations. And God says, in light of all of that, you have profaned me. You have profaned my holiness by your marriage practices, by your worship practices, and by destroying family solidarity through divorce. Can you imagine having that kind of a charge leveled against you that you had profaned the holy calling of God in your life? Now, for Israel, for Israel, that's going to change, but it's going to take a while. So I'd like to move on and look at this disputation number four. Disputation number four is going to talk about purification through judgment. Purification through judgment. We thought about the treachery that's involved in violating the Mosaic Covenant, treachery towards your brethren, treachery towards your God. And now I'd like to think about purification through divine judgment. Next person, please, please read the screen. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Everyone that doth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, Where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's silver. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and person of gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against false spirits, and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and will turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Okay, thank you. We're thinking about purification through divine judgment, but before we do, I want to put a plug in for the Trinitarian passage in this disputation. You like that graphic, Raymond? Trinitarian plug? Yeah. It don't fit where I go. That's <laughs> ah, okay. I, I was thinking Grant was going to be really happy with my visual, and he's not even in here. So I've blown it. Okay, but, but, but on, in all seriousness, I want, you, I want to try to help you see not just the flow of the book, but little nuggets in the book that you, and, 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 and when you read the scripture, that you can just sort of isolate and pull them out and say, wow, that's got to mean something. But we'll, we'll think more about this day of the Lord, but look what he says. God's going to send a messenger, and God is clearly the messenger that's going to be sent. How do we know that? Because the, there is a list of divine prerogatives of what's going to happen when, the, when this messenger comes. What's going to happen during the day of the Lord is, are things that only God himself can do. So in terms of biblical theology, in terms, in terms of studying the scripture from, from Genesis to Revelation and making connection between, between the themes and the types and the, and the history and the, po the poetry and all of that, this, this is a prophetic or a predictive prophecy. It's a predictive prophecy of someone who's going to come 
and it is very, very clearly messianic. Okay, it is a messianic prophecy that's, that's just, that God just put right smack in the middle of this condemnation of Israel. It is, on the one hand, a predictive prophecy of a messenger, just like the four songs of, 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 the, serv- of the servant in Isaiah. They're not really sure who that is, but when you look at the description of the messenger or you look at the description of the servant in the four servant songs, it becomes patently obvious that this individual has divine power because the prerogatives that are given to him are only given to deity. Read carefully. That's why, remember, you read for, for breadth and then you study for depth. This, this, I just wanted, that's all I wanted to say about that. I want to make sure that we, we see a nugget when we, when we come across it. Okay. Um, the divine messenger is really a, a big topic in this, dis, in this disputation. Uh, three new themes in this disputation. And, and you can think of them as needs if you want. But there is the need for messianic intervention. There is the need for a day of judgment to clean this whole thing up. And there is a need for the buzzword in, in a lot of Christianity today, and that's social justice. Well, if, if, you, if you go back and you look at the, the language there in those verses, society was in a mess. We're going to see two older themes that are reintroduced, and that's priestly reform and restoration of acceptable worship. I also want you to notice as we look at this, this fourth disputation also starts with the voice of Malachi, not with the voice of God. Now, it's hard, to, it's hard for me to discern what exactly that means, but, but, but it's there, so it's a fact, so we've got to deal with it. Dis, disputation three and four, which remember, remember the word that starts with a C, but it's pronounced with a K? Thank you. It, it, chiastically, these, these kind of fit together, okay? One and six, two and five, three and four. So for some reason, God chose to start both of those disputations with Malachi's voice as opposed to his own. The outline of the, of the disputation is this. The main point is the coming of the divine messenger, the calling Israel back to covenantal obedience. The Lord has grown weary. And Israel wants to know how, and he says, by calling evil good and, and good evil, and, and then asking if God really even gives a rip about any of this. And, and then the implications are, God will show them that he does care. God will show him that there will come a time when there will be a very clear judgment. There will be a very clear distinction between the wicked and the righteous. So... Maybe you just stop a moment and ask yourself, I'm just asking rhetorically in, in the spirit of Malachi, can you really make God weary? You know, sometimes I, I in, in, get involved with people and I, I think in my mind, I think this person's making my back hurt. I just wish they would do something else. I get weary of them. Well, the, 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 the disputation also says, um, can a person rob God? We're going to see in verse or in disputation number six, where Malachi says, um, God says, your words have been stout against me. That literally means your words are overturning my words. Is it possible for our words to overturn God's words? 
Is it possible for man to rob God? Is it possible for man to weary God? The answer to all three questions is yes. But you think, well, God's long-suffering, and God's all-powerful, and, and God is, how do we do that? God says you do that. Now, ultimately, we never will trump God's words. Ultimately, God doesn't tire out. And ultimately, we can't steal anything from, from the infinite riches of God. But don't miss the metaphor because of the argument of ultimate reality. God says, you can rob me, you can weary me, and your words can overturn mine. I, I'm trying to impress upon you young folks that God is very, very holy. And God is very, very much unlike us. And God is very jealous of his holiness. And God does not need you. God needs nothing. God has permitted us graciously to be, uh, be able to know who he is, at least in part now, to worship him, to be saved by him, and, and someday to live with him forever. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that you are the priority in the universe. God is the priority in the universe. God sets all of the terms, all of the terms, for how people will relate to him. And they are gracious terms to be sure, but there are terms to it. And God is calling Israel out of their sinfulness and into a deeper, more appropriate walk with him. Disputation 5, um, as we look at it expositionally, Israel wearies the Lord with their dis disrespectful words. Just terrible words. Does God even care about what's going on? God, we, we look at the wicked, and the wicked seem to be prospering. We look at the righteous, and they don't seem to be prospering. And God doesn't do anything about it. And, and not only that, but he doesn't even seem to care about it. That's a terrible thing to level against God. And then the, that's, in, that's in, in the 17th verse of that second chapter. That, that's the concluding thought there of that chapter. It's the introductory thought here of this disputation. And God is about to tell them, yes, I really do care. And, and the, the, the futility that you express in your faith is misplaced. You don't understand. But, but, but think about it for a minute, young people. Why would they? Why would they understand? Why, in the fact, would they even care? These are people who, who are in such gross violation of the Mosaic Covenant. Why are they even concerned about the, the idea of God not, um, not caring if the, if the wicked prosper and the, and the righteous don't? That, that, that's, that's, that, it's kind of a mysterious phrase there. It's not as mysterious as them saying that where is the God of judgment? Because even wicked people want to be sure that they get a fair shake in life. And so even, even the, the person who robs wants to make sure nobody robs him. The person who murders wants to make sure that his children don't get murdered. You see what I'm saying? There, there, is, there is this kind of perverse hypocrisy among the, the unregenerated, among unbelievers, among wicked people. They want what they want for themselves, and if they can't get it, they complain about it. But what they really want is not what God really wants. And that's the, kind of, that's the kind of argument we have going on here. So in, in verse 3, um, or chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord promises to send his divine messenger. 
The Lord is going to send a messenger. There is somebody who is going to be coming. And this divine messenger is going to usher in the day of the Lord. Now, we're going to talk more about the day of the Lord tomorrow, but let's just say for right now that, that um, Malachi is introducing a judgment aspect to the day of the Lord. Now, these folks would like the day of the Lord to come because they, they, they've got it in their mind that it's just going to be a wonderful thing. There is duality in the day of the Lord. There is going to be severe judgment at the day of the Lord. But there's also going to be great blessing. These folks, I'm sure, would like to be part of the blessing side of that equation. But that is not what God tells him. Look, look what um, they're being told in verse number three. The Lord, through his messenger, is going to purify the Levites. I find that particularly interesting. He's going to purify the sons of Levi. Why do you reckon that, he's, that he um, specifies the sons of Levi as the, as the target of purification? Because they're the priests. They're the ones who are in charge, right? They are the ones who are supposed to be keeping the tablets pure. I think that that is exactly why he identifies them. Because he is, is looking at them as the ones to blame for all of this problem. Now, that purification is going to affect others who are not specifically the sons of Levi, but I think God has a very specific purpose in calling them out. That passage, would somebody read that verse to us again, if you have it? Who shall abide, or, or this is the third chapter. Somebody quote it for me. Who shall abide the day of his coming? Yeah, okay, keep going. He shall set as a refiner and purifier of silver. Shall purify the sons of Levi. Okay, what does it say about soap in there? Fuller soap. Okay, where where would you if you were going to go into the Bible to think about the refiner's fire? Maybe it's not called that, but where would you go for an example of how hot fire can get? Daniel, seven times hotter, right? Burn the ropes right off those boys. Now, Raymond, I'm going to age you and me, okay? But you probably remember lye soap, lye-based soap. Your grandma or your mother or somebody made it stinking old stuff, burn the skin right off your fingers, right? Yes. Oh. Mm. Lye soap was terribly strong stuff. They had to make fabric that was thicker and heavier back then if you were going to clean it with that lye soap. That's the picture. Who can, who can stand? The, the refiner's fire, the refiner who is going to take gold or silver in a crucible and burn out all the impurities and leave the pure gold. That, 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 that fuller soap is just going to clean that stuff, all the impurities out of that, that hide. That is the picture of what's going to happen to, at the day of the Lord. It is a purification judgment and the Lord is going to be a swift judge and witness against these sinners. This is going to come quickly. This is going to be an episode in the history of the children of Israel that will completely change the course of that history. And we're going to look a little more about that later. I'd like to just leave it at that for right now. But this disputation basically says 
The Lord is weary with the criticism of Israel, with, with the false conclusions of Israel regarding wickedness and righteousness and, and, and asking if the Lord even cares, is the Lord even going to do anything? Is our faith worthwhile? Everything seems so futile. God says, hold on a minute. There is a day coming that will change all of that. I will answer in full force in the day of the Lord. Okay, let's look at disputation number five. Disputation number five. We're looking at the immutable God who blesses faithfulness to his law. The immutable God who blesses faithfulness to his law. Would somebody please read the screen? For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of But you said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Next person. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out, out the blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer of your seeds, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your land. Neither shall your fine cast your fruit before the time in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful, a delightsome man, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, thank you both. Again, this is a disputation that, that uses quite a bit of vocabulary repetition. The primary theme here is the returning of um, the people of Israel to their God. Again, this disputation is not talking about the priesthood. We, we've, we've kind of moved from the purification of the sons of Levi. We're talking more about the folks here. And what is being described is this deficiency in tithing, and that's being called inadequate worship. And then God is inviting Israel to prove him. Now, I want to go back here for a moment. Let's look at verse number six. I am the Lord, I change not. What does that mean? Someone? He does. Somebody give her a $10 gift card to Starbucks or D&M. Okay, so what does that mean for us in our relationship with God, in our expectations about God? We can trust him because she tells us he doesn't change. <laughs> Profound. Okay. So does that mean that God is the same yesterday and today and forever? Is he the same God that was active in the life of the children of Israel or is he a different God? Okay. I hear people say that God is a God of holiness and wrath and justice and anger and on, 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 and on in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Grant tells us that he's more of a father to us. 
and, and that he's loving and kind. And so, so is that true or not true? It's all true. It is, it is God from start to finish. God, God has attributes that are, that are clear throughout Scripture. He is a multifaceted character, and beautifully so. And this verse is telling us, because I change not, you are not consumed. God is telling them, he's reassuring them that if I change, in other words, if I just got mad at you for the way you've been living, I, I, I would just vaporize you. But he's reminding them that because he is immutable and because he is, he is a God who, who, um, who has, over the course of the Old Testament, revealed himself by a variety of names. And in many of those cases, especially if you can make this study with Abraham, God revealed himself to Abraham by a variety of names at, at a variety of circumstances. You'll find it in your King James Version. Some other English versions have the same kind of code for how they, they write out the name of God. That's an interesting study because every time Abraham needed something, God revealed himself by a name that was consistent with that need. He is saying here, I don't change. I absolutely don't change. Therefore, you are not consumed. Even though in verse 7, he says, from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from my ordinances, have not kept them. He's saying that in the light of your sinful rebellion, I am not going to consume you. And, and young people, that is a promise that is as applicable to you today as it was to the children of Israel back then. But now look what he says. This is, this is astounding. Return to me, and I will return to you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you say, wherein shall we return? Okay, so does, does that really mean, does that really mean what it says? That the, the children of Israel need to return to God, and if they do return to God, he will return to them? I say yes. Remember, he was going to cut off from the tents of Jacob the people who were misusing their marriage relationship. God is saying here in a, in a very clear statement that the, the behavior, the sinful, the, the violating behavior of the children of Israel has caused them to be at distance from God. Now, why doesn't God just run after them? Why doesn't God just run after them and say, oh, wait a minute, stop. Just, we'll, we'll, we'll just make a deal right here where you are and we'll be okay. Why does not he do that? Because he doesn't change. In the scripture, especially in the New Testament, you will never see, ever, you will never see where the Bible says that God was reconciled back to you. Second Corinthians says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, bringing the world back to him. God is saying the same thing here. You return to me, I return to you. If you want me, you come back to me. That's what God is saying here. And because of his immutability, he can offer that blessing to the children of Israel. But then they say to him, wherein shall we return? And here is God's response. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? And God tells him very clearly, here's how you have departed from me. 
you have departed from me in terms of tithes and offerings. But ye, ye, are, a curse, ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Once again, God is indicting the entire nation. God is saying the whole nation is at fault for robbing him in tithes and offerings. Now, from a practical standpoint, do you know why that was so important? Why the tithes and the offerings were so important? And I'm gonna, I'll just make a distinction for, for just for ease. Tithes is talking about a 10% sacrificial gift to the Lord, and offerings were, we're going to say, are the, the more periodic offerings that were, that were brought to the temple. Okay, let's just simplify it that way. They, they weren't paying the full amount, and, and they weren't giving the offerings that they should have. Why was that so important? It's a, it's a form of worship. What else? That's, thank you. That's what I was really after. That's what the priests live off of. Do you see how Israel is just imploding? Israel is just, is just collapsing in on itself. God gave Israel the Mosaic Covenant. This Mosaic Covenant was that that they were supposed to live by. This was going to define them among the nations as a kingdom of priests among the nations. This Mosaic Covenant was sacred to them. It was, it was staffed and, and administrated and taught by and preserved by, theoretically, the Levitical priesthood. Levitical priesthood was, was, was um, followed by the people. It was supported by the people. The people were supposed to live according to Mosaic Covenant as taught and, and modeled by the Levitical priesthood. And at every level, it collapsed. Except at the level of the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic, I mean, what God gave them was never collapsed, obviously. But every, the, the, the guardians of the, of the covenant started to collapse. The people who were, who were supposed to be listening to the guardians of the covenant listened to them and they collapsed. And so God is saying, you're all cursed. You're cursed with a curse because you've robbed me. And you think, well, that, what? Just, God doesn't need money and God doesn't need food. But that was how he was supporting the, the infrastructure of the administration of the, of the Mosaic Covenant. How do you rob God? You, you strip the infrastructure of the resources that God had given the people to give to the, to the priests. And God hated that. God absolutely hated that because what that ended up doing then is compromising the ability of the priests to do their job. Now... That doesn't mean that the priests were um, innocent, because remember, we've already seen that the priests were offering sick animals. We saw that in the second disputation. The priests were offering sick animals, lame animals, blind animals. They weren't offering enough of them. They were offering less than they should have of the, of the perfect offerings that God wanted. The people weren't bringing their offering to the temple like they should have. Everything about this is wrong. And God says, you're fortunate because I am immutable. I will not change. I cannot change. And I will not treat you in any other way. So let's look at verse 10. Bring all of your tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven 
and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Okay, what about this verse? Doesn't James tell us that we are not to tempt God? He does. So why is God saying this here? He wants to establish his word, and he wants the people to believe him at his word. So he says, bring your tithes into the storehouse. Don't bring me those sick animals. Don't bring me part of it. Bring me the whole thing in order that there might be meat in my house for the Levitical priests. And now prove me. He is inviting the people to prove him. That's the big difference between this passage and, and its abuse by the health and wealth preachers. Okay, the health and wealth preachers, of course, they are they are chastising. They are emotionally abusing their congregations to to send more money in to prove their faithfulness, to prove how God will open the storehouses of blessing and shower down all this blessing so that that preacher can buy himself a new jet. And he can get another couple of $1,500 suits so he can stand in front of another congregation and tell them how blessed he is because his people give. And why don't you get, you understand there's a vast difference between these charlatan health and wealth preachers and God saying to his people, remember, these are people who are discouraged with God, right? They think that he, that, that he, that he blesses the wicked and, and, and neglects the righteous and that he doesn't even really care. And God is saying, oh, wait a minute, that's wrong. I'm going to show you ultimately it's wrong in the, day of, in the day of the Lord. I am telling you right now that if you will stop your wickedness, if you will turn around and return to me, I will return to you. But notice what he says. I, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts, and all nations shall call you blessed for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Can anybody tell me what that language sounds like? <laughs> Everything sounds like Matthew 28 to you. <laughs> it, it's fulfillment of, of God's blessing Abraham. Thank you. It is a, it, that is Abrahamic covenantal language. I'll bless the nation. You'll be a blessing to others. It is a promise of fulfillment of fruitfulness in the land. In Israel, that's everything. That's what those people wanted. God promised a land that flowed with milk and honey. God promised a land of plenty. And this is what he's doing right here. He, he is exhorting the people in Malachi's day to prove him and to prove him by simple obedience to his word. Yes. <coughs> So do you think that that is not applicable to us today? Do you think that we cannot prove God? I think we can be obedient to his word and he will bless us as he chooses. I don't want to make an ironclad connection that says, well, especially if it's a natural blessing. I, I don't want to make that ironclad connection. But I do want to say with, without any hesitation that when we are obedient, faithfully obedient to God, he will bless us according to his will and according to his promise. But we can't, we, I don't think we can say that if I am just a, a good, holy person, that God is going to prosper my business. Uh, that's, that's, I don't want to go that far. In fact, I, I, I want to I not go that far. But yes, we can expect blessing from God, even if that blessing doesn't always look like 
what we want it to. God does not punish faithfulness. Okay? In fact, there's times, and just this is an aside, but there will be times in your Christian walk where you feel like you're growing and, and things are going well, and legitimately so. I mean, you, you, you examine your heart and, and things are growing and, and, and it looks like things are, are, are moving in the direction of, of the, the work of the Spirit. And then all of a sudden, it, it's like God takes another prop out of your life. You thought you were walking by faith, and God says, well, you are except for here, and pulls that out. And Wow, what, what just happened to me? Well, I don't think God's punishing. I think God is discipling. God is testing. God is, God is trying. God is helping to mature us. God can't, if he just pulls all the props out at once, whatever those artificial non-faith-based props are, that may be too much for someone. But I think as we move along, God calls us to a deeper walk. You, you, you look at the life of Abraham from, from the time that Abraham was called out of early Chaldees till the time that he did what? Lifted the knife? There is a whole lot of life that happened in between those two terminal points. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham could not have lifted the knife. Even if he had a boy, he, he wouldn't have done it. He couldn't have done it. He was too immature. He had to lie a couple times about his wife. He had to go through some real maturing till he could come to the point. And I think when he lifted his knife and God says, well, hold on, now I know. I think God was saying to him, now, now I know that you are mature and that you, are, you will do as you say. It'd be my, I don't know if that's okay with you, Raymond, but that's the way I look at it. He's not even listening, he's talking. Is that okay, Raymond? With, with, yes, he, faith accumulates. Thank you. Faith grows from faith to faith, from glory to glory. Okay, so we're, we're getting really close to being done here with the time for today. But I do want to think about a couple of questions Let's go back to the third disputation. Just some things for us to think about. I know I rifled through it pretty quick. Okay, so we know in disputation one, it tells us about Israel and God. And it tells us what? That God loves Israel. Okay, that's what disputation one told us. Disputation two, we didn't get to this the other day. but, But what do you... I'm calling what they were doing in in disputation number two as an evolved system of worship as opposed to a revealed system of worship. Do do you understand? Can you you comment on what the difference might be based on the second disputation? The way the priests priests were offering all those lame animals and so forth? Was your hand just going up, Caleb? Okay. Revealed would be the, the system of worship that God prescribed for them. Right. The vault means they added to it. Exactly. So that, so it evolved over the course of years. Okay. Is that possible in our lives that we can evolve a system of worship that is not as biblical and God oriented as it should be? Everybody can do that, right? That is not that is not confined to plain people. That is that is that is across the board human weakness of wanting to develop our own system of doing things. And that is especially egregious when God is very clear about how he wants things done. Now you say, okay, well, but in the New Testament, God is not specific about, as specific about worship as he is in the Old Testament. 
And, and that's right, and there's legitimate debate about how the New Testament regulates worship. We need to be careful, regardless of whether we see that as regulative or normative. That is, that, that, um, uh, in my, in, I'll just say what my thought is, if it's, not, if it's not taught in the New Testament, then we probably shouldn't do it in terms of worship. Other people say, if it's not, taught in the, if it's not prohibited in the New Testament, it's okay in worship. That's it's kind of the two schools of how we should worship. We can, we can get into some different, very good discussions about it, but, but in light of what God tells Malachi, we need to be very careful that we don't try to dictate the terms by which God will accept worship. I think that's the lesson I get from here more than any. Now, we've already talked about the effect of sin on others. That we, is it possible that we can deal treacherously with our brothers and sisters in the Lord? Is that possible? Can someone give me a scenario that that that, that might apply to? No. Get, uh, well, yes, but give us give us a practical application. How would that How would that happen today? Well, if I, I was say if I make a choice that's a well is a sin and then causes another brother to offend. Okay, that's that's right. That's good. Any anybody else? Misinterpret scripture or misteach. Misteach scripture, you, yes. Here's what I'm. Here's what I'm looking for. Uh, I, I've I, I've talked about this with some other young people, and and they thought it was just them, but it happens with old people. Let's just say that I've got some sin in my life, whatever it is, but it's a pretty big thing. Okay, I am, I am clearly in violation of the Scripture, and I know I'm in violation of the Scripture, but you don't know that about me. You don't know that about me. It's something in my life. Okay? So, sin always does what? It, it separates from God. It, 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 there's distance. God said, return to me, and I'll return to you. There's, sin always creates distance. If sin creates distance in my life from God, does sin create distance in my life from Kyler? So, not, not now because I live in Modesto and he lives in, but if we live in the same congregation, okay, and he comes to me and he, and he says, Vince, I got, I got an issue. I, I'm not real comfortable talking to my dad about it. I want to talk to you about it. I've got, and what if that's the same thing I have or related to the, the issue that I'm trying to hide from everybody? What am I going to do when he, when he comes to me? I'm going to back off. I notice in my congregation that there are times when I don't see people as frequently as I should see them. And sometimes I'll talk to them about that. And I find out they're struggling with sin. Sin separates us from, from God and it can separate us from others. Now, we've been, we've been told and we understand that we are all gifted by the Holy Spirit, right? But if I'm backing away from my congregation, if you're backing away from your congregation because of sin in your life, you are dealing treacherously. In my opinion, you're dealing treacherously with your brothers and your sisters because you're withholding your gift from them. And you might say, well, yeah, but God's got other gifted people. And that's right, he does. But, but God sovereignly puts you there so that you could exercise your gift. My, my summary point here is that sin can cause us to deal treacherously with our brothers and our sisters because it creates distance. We're supposed to be knit together, Paul says in Colossians, our hearts to be knit together in love, tightly together. So we want to be careful. This is not just an Old Testament thing. Um, 
Let me, let me move up here to number four for just a minute. Let's get a question or a discussion out of this. Why do you think God is waiting until the day of the Lord to execute judgment on the children of Israel? Gives them time to repent. I was looking for a really good dispensational answer here. He's long-suffering, but of course there is... Yes, ma'am. That's right. Okay. That, that is correct. And he's told them the day of the Lord is future. One, one of the things that you see in the, that you don't see in the New Testament, or excuse me, in the Old Testament, is what's going on right now. Whether you're a dispensationalist, premillennial, pre-rapture, amillennial, whatever, the fact of the matter is that the, 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 the prophets didn't see clearly this time of the church age. It, God is not going to abandon his promises. Is this possible in our life? Can we weary God? Do you ever feel like you do weary God because, I'm going to go back to Grant, because he's visual. He had, oh, he took it down. Okay, so go back to fact, okay, fact and faith and feeling. Is it possible that, you, that you're that big tall guy at the end there and, and you, are, you are predominantly um, feeling oriented? Do you know people like that who just work on their, from their feelings? And you, and you say, well, but wait a minute, it can't be that because here's what the scripture says. Oh, but yeah, I don't feel that. I know it, I, I don't get that doesn't resonate with me. I'm not criticizing them other than to say that's a really hard position to work somebody out of. And, and we can come to the point here that we can just weary God by, by our, our feelings. I don't feel the facts of scripture and I don't have enough faith to override that feeling. And, or, or, or just because I just don't want to do what Scripture says. And so I'm going to say, well, it's not salvational, so why should I be worried about it? Well, I would be worried about it just because Jesus said that man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in my opinion, whether it's salvational or sanctificational, it, all, it is all part of the same biblical corpus that we are to be living by. So we want to be careful about that. We are just about done. Somebody, can somebody share on this? The disputation expresses the unwavering faithfulness of God even in the face of disobedience of his people. How is his consistent faithfulness demonstrated in your life? Anybody want to offer on that? Kent. Well, I think the verse is in Romans. I wanted to look it up before I said it too much. So your hand in the air was just a placeholder? Yeah. Okay. Well, just to, I just, I've thought about the good, as far as leading me, to continuing to lead me to repentance. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. It's about the second chapter, I think, of Romans, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so, I, anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't talk about that he will guarantee people to lead people to repentance, but I guess it does say about um, faith or the work he's begun and as he will continue. Okay. So, so what you're saying, I think, Kent, is that because we have faith in the goodness of God and we know he's immutable, 
we know that even in times of struggle, or, or let's just even call it outright sin, we, His goodness is there to lead us to repentance. He, he is going to give us that opportunity for repentance. That's one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit will lead us back. That is correct. I like the verse in James, Russell, that, that the spirit that dwelleth within us lusteth to envy. Okay? Now, now envy in us is not a good thing, right? But, and, and, and lust, lust is a, actually, it's an amoral word. It's, it's, it can be either good or bad. But James is saying that the Holy Spirit lusts, enviously lusts after us, is, is the picture I get of that. You know, this idea that if I go out and, and, and I commit a sin over on the way to Seattle and that God just cuts me off and I'm floating around out there somewhere just half-baked, that's wrong. That Holy Spirit loves me so much that He is not. Um, you need to have more faith in the love of the Holy Spirit than in your own sinfulness. Okay, so... We still need to return. We still, need, we still need to respond to that. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Do you ever feel relational distance between you and God? Why? When? How, what, what, what causes that? Because of disobedience. I mean, it can be palpable, right? You can feel it. There are times, there, is there ever a time that you get up in the morning and you know you should read, but you don't feel like it? Go to bed at night and you think, oh, you know, ah, thanks for the day, Lord. Keep me safe through the night. Boom. <laughs> right? That's probably, I'm not even sure that's better than nothing, but that's, you, you know, because you don't feel like it. And, and when I say you don't feel like it, it's because there's relational distance there. Now, don't get us wrong. And Grant, support me on this. If you, faith and facts are not void of feeling. You cannot love the Lord your God with your whole heart if you don't have some serious emotion in it. Okay. But you can't be dominated by the emotion. And you should take as a message from the Holy Spirit when you feel that relational distance, when you don't want to read, when you don't want to pray, when you don't want to go to church, you need to stop and you need to have a serious sit down with the Holy Spirit and ask Him why that is. I, I'm, I'm not sure that everybody is self-aware enough all the time to know why that is. It could be, it could be something hidden that you aren't seeing. Remember, the devil, there, there, there's no rules of engagement with the devil. It's not just going to be something clear-cut, open, that the devil is going to do to you. And you're going to say, oh, yeah, I know why I'm not reading, because the devil is doing this, that, the other. You don't always know that. There's times you've got to peel back layers. Until you, get to the, until you get to the core of your heart and you, can, and you can, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, take that to God in confession. I, so I'm advocating a real strong utilization of the Holy Spirit whenever there is this sense of relational distance between you and God. And we've already talked a little bit about this, this, this proper and improper testing of God. Um, and we've talked about faithfulness as a guarantee of, of present, especially natural blessings. I think we'll just stop right there. That I think we're close enough, and I think the next 20 minutes is going to be jammed up enough. Why don't we just bow our heads? Father in heaven, thank you for teaching us today from Malachi. Thank you, Father, for the, the truth that 
that we need to treat each other without deceit and without treachery, and we do so by honoring your word each day in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you are immutable. We thank you, too, Father, that you have purified us through the blood of Jesus, and we pray that each day that Holy Spirit would bring us back to the recognition of of that fount of every blessing, that we could find cleansing and purity there. We thank you, Father, that there there is the promise coming that you are going to set all things right. We look forward to learning more about that tomorrow. As, as you set everything right through the, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Now, Father, we ask that you will bless us as we leave from this place and head over into Seattle. Father, we recognize that there will be many challenges, that there is great darkness. And I pray, Father, not only for protection physically for these young people, but even more than that, spiritually. We pray, dear Father, that your angels would show themselves strong in our defense. In Jesus' name, amen.